Yes, Spirit, we ask you to come and put strength in every stride and to give grace for every hurdle. We pray you do that by the word of Christ. We pray, Lord, you would do it for your glory. We pray you do it for the building up of your church. We pray you do it for our joy and for our eternal good. So as we look into your word this evening, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts that are ready to receive. And Lord, may we be changed from one degree of glory as we behold our God and our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, tonight we continue in our series around this Christmas time, a series we're calling The Songs of Salvation. And we'll eventually get to Mary's song in Luke 1 and Zechariah's song-like prophecy in Luke 1. Uh, we'll eventually get to some songs in the book of Revelation. But for now, we're in the Old Testament, looking at some songs which lead up to and in various ways foreshadow and, and, and sort of, if not predict, uh, point us to that finer, final and fuller salvation that we know in Christ. So on Sunday, we looked at the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, a song of celebration in light of the mighty miracle of God parting the Red Sea, saving his people, and defeating the enemy, the Egyptian army. And tonight, we'll look at the Song of Deborah and Barak, in Judges 5. So if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Judges chapter 5. There we have a song of celebration for God saving his people once again, this time by defeating the Canaanites who have enslaved Israel in the previous chapter. But God has freed them. Like on Sunday with the book of Exodus where chapter 14 tells the story and then chapter 15 responds in song. So it is with Judges 4 and 5. Judges 4 tells the story and then Judges 5 records a song of celebration in response. Now we want to focus on chapter 5 tonight. But we won't easily understand the song of celebration in chapter 5 without knowing something of the story that it's based on in chapter 4. So before we get to the song, we'll have the story. And then after we focus on the song, I'll conclude with what I might call the significance. Okay, that's where we're going. But first, let me try to explain the story to you. I won't read all of chapter 4 to you. Uh, I'll retell the story that's in chapter 4 and quote from it here or there. Uh, but in order to even tell you the story of Judges 4, we've got to kind of zoom out a little bit even more. We have to know something of the story of the book of Judges. The book of Judges has a repeated chorus. There was no king in Israel in those days, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Three times we find that same saying, like in chapter 17, verse 6. It's, I believe, the last verse in chapter 21 and elsewhere. These are times of bad leadership, which lead to bad people, 
But a good God shows himself faithful. There's not just the chorus of judges, but there are these cycles in judges. God's people go astray. That's step one. Then there are troublesome consequences for their sin. God brings judgment. The enemy comes in. They're oppressed. Eventually, in their oppression and judgment, they cry out to the Lord. And eventually, the Lord provides a deliverer or a judge. That's why it's called judges. Uh, A judge steps in to set God's people free. And God, for a while then, gives them... It gives that people a a bit of a respite from the trouble and the judgment that they had been under before they cried out to the Lord for help and saw that help. And that lasts, well, however long it lasts until the cycle repeats itself again. That's the book of Judges. And chapter 4 of Judges opens with a predictable trouble. Predictable trouble. Look down in your Bibles, chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud, a previous judge, died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Heresheth, Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Here's trouble once again. You see it? Sin and oppression crying out to the Lord. We now know what comes next because I told you what the cycles of judges uh, tend to tend to see and tend to show us. And so in verse 4 of chapter 4 and following, we find some surprising deliverers enter the scene. One is Deborah. She's a prophetess and a judge. And another is Barak, who apparently is the military commander. These two go together. They'll play a kind of Batman and Robin sort of role with each other but not the way you might think. The Batman is Deborah. She's no one's Robin. Deborah is respectful, but due to Barack's relative, pass, Barack's relative passivity, she's the one doing the prodding and the poking and even the prophesying. So let's read on. Look at verse 6 of Judges 4. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoim, the Kadesh Nephtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Nephtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, the Canaanite army, to meet you by the river Kashan, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, 
For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So notice, the prophetess Deborah reminds the general that God has a calling on his life and specific plans for him. She reminds him of the plan. His response is less than ideal. I'll go if you go with me. Um, Nothing wrong with the prophetess going with him, but I mean, this is the general. He should want to go with or without the prophetess, but he won't go without her. She will go with him, that's fine, but a new prophecy is laid down. God will wrought a victory through all this, but you're not going to get the glory. Uh, It's going to end up that the enemy is in the hands of a woman, and there the victory is won. You'll take a backseat role to this victory. So they are surprising deliverers, you could say, because, well, they're new on the scene. Also because they're male and female, and that's new in the book of Judges. But, but, but also surprising to some would be no doubt that God was using Deborah as the primary instrument in this Batman and Robin salvation. Now look down. I won't read specifically, but notice in verse 14 in your Bibles, there's another charge from Deborah to Barak. Um, here is the opportunity for him to pounce, and he's sitting around or something, and, and she tells him, go, go, get it, now's the moment. Does not the Lord go out before you? It's clear by verse 15 that the Lord is behind all this. He's orchestrating everything, not only through the prophecy he's giving Deborah, but by the outcome that's happening on the battlefield. By verse 15 and 16, Deborah's prophecy is beginning to be fulfilled. The enemy has been dealt a heavy blow, and now, verse 16 and following, the general, Sisera, is on the run. And now at this point, the narrative zooms in. It zooms into one tent. Tent, T-E-N-T. And and the storytelling slows way down. Let me read it, verse 17 and following. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazar, in the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So she turned aside to her, he turned aside to her into the tent. She covered him with a rug. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say, no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you're seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. 
So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. We could stop there. We had surprising deliverers before, but now there's an even more surprising deliverer there in that tent. She's surprising because, I say this gingerly, she's just a housewife. I know, I went saying that. Uh, I have a housewife. I love housewives. I love homemaking and homemakers. But the story is intent to tell us that that's what she is. She's a tent. What we would call a homemaker in the Titus II language, she's a tent maker. But not the kind that makes tents in their physical construction. She makes the home. She makes the tent. She's a homemaker. The victory is wrought by a homemaker. And there's a time to say how important homemakers are and how glorious their calling is. And there's also a time to say that you didn't see it coming that the homemaker would defeat the general of the Canaanites with a a tent peg driven into his temple with a hammer. Dare I say again, by a homemaker. And a non-Israelite homemaker at that. You didn't see it coming. It's a surprising rescue. It's a decisive victory. Well, that's the story. And it leads to a song. That's chapter 5. We have in chapter 5, if you look there in your Bibles, we've got three sections to this rather long and wordy song. We're going to read each of the sections as we come to it and discuss it each section at a time. So let me read for you chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, the first, what we might call the first verse of this song. It says, Then sang Deborah in Barak, the son of Abinoim, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, In the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned, and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among the 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, to the sound of the musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. As I said, this is the first of three sections in this song. And with each of those three sections, we have three 
themes that relate to each other by way of comparison and contrast. So we could call this first section a scared people, a strong woman, and a saving God. A scared people, strong, a strong woman, and a saving God. Let me show you each of those. A scared people, where is that? Well, right in the middle. Verses 6 and 7. People stayed off the streets in those days. Uh, when the Canaanites ruled, you just hold up in your house. Don't go out if you must take the back roads. No, well, new gods were chosen, it says in verse 8. Not only were they retreating to their homes for safety, they were also being influenced by their idolatry. And it led to no one picking up shield or spear to go out in battle. They were a scared people. And right there in the middle, between verses 6 and 7 and verse 8, at the end of verse 7, you've got a strong woman. Until I arose, Deborah says, until I arose as a mother in Israel. A scared people, a, a strong woman. And yet behind it all isn't just Deborah, but God. You see, all praise is going not to Deborah. Deborah's singing praise to God. Bless the Lord. She's saying, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord. And then notice in verse 4. Lord, when you went out from Seir, you marched from the region of Edom. You have been on the march from day one since you led us out of Egypt. You have been on the march. You've been causing things to quake and tremble like Mount Sinai. The Lord has done all this. He's a saving God. Therefore, sing to him, bless him, make melody to him. A scared people, a strong woman, behind it all, a saving God who deserves our songs. Well, let's read the next section now. At the end of verse 11, here's a good indication that these Bible verses we have in our Bibles are not inspired by God because surely they missed this one. The end of verse 11 certainly introduces what follows. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. And here's what they sang. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake. Break out in song. Arise, Barak. Lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley. Following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir marched down the commanders. And from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah. The Issachar and Issachar faithful to Barak into the valley, they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there was great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed down 
beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They, not, they got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horse's hoofs with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Moraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Well, in the second verse of this celebratory song, we might call this verse the comfortable, the courageous, and God's creation. Notice first the comfortable. The comfortable, verses 12 to 15 highlight the comfortable. I'm sorry, verses 15 to 17, rather, highlight the comfortable. This section highlights the the different tribes of Israel, some of which were valiant and some of which were fearful. And their fear uh, bore the excuse of convenience and comfort. They wanted to stay home, simply put. They wanted to protect their flocks. They said it's not a good time. It's not a good, good time of year to go to war. And so they stayed back. When they should have gone, they were a comfortable people. At least, that's what they said. But then, some of the tribes really do show to be among the courageous. Of course, they're following the lead of Deborah and Barak. That's a big part of this. Uh, They're leading the way, as you see in verse 12, 13, and following. The people are following. They're following at their heels. They're following with great excitement and fervor. They are trusting their God. They are trusting God's leaders. And they're even trusting the God of creation. Notice God's creation is what is proving to be the most effective means of victory. Somehow, we don't know how, we don't know the story, but stars were fighting against Sisera, verse 20. The the waters of Kishon swept the army away at one point, according to verse 21. Horses were involved somehow in verse 22. You see, three groups of people here, the comfortable, the courageous, and God's creation winning the victory. One more section, verses 24 and following. Let's read that. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera 
She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window, she, another woman, peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princes answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil in dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And we'll stop there. We can call this third section a depraved mother, a daring woman, and a dead general. Let's start with the depraved mother. She's the second lady in this third verse or stanza. It's the mother of Sisera. He must be a mama's boy. She's sad when he's away. She's peering out the window longingly through tears even because he's taken longer than usual. Someone around her, some ones around her comfort her. They say to her, you know how it is when there's so much spoil to gather up? You know how it is with, women, with men on the battlefield when they find women. It almost it should turn your stomach. What's it say? It says, a womb or two for every man. She comforts herself with these words. Yes, the spoil. I forgot how long it takes the spoil. Oh, the, the plundering of the women. I forgot. Sisera loves that. He's got her eye on the spoil of those famous Israelite dyed materials, which are embroidered. Can't wait for those to get back home. That's a depraved woman. So before you, you have too much compassion on the Canaanites, remember that God, back in Genesis and again in Exodus and probably in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, was lamenting how great the Canaanites' sin was. And he said at some point he would bring it to an end. We saw in Exodus 15 just last week that one day the Canaanites are going to tremble at the God of Israel. It's coming. This wicked people, God said even back in Genesis, their wickedness will come to an end, but it hasn't yet reached its high point. You want to see a window into a depraved society? It's when the, the general's mom is comforted by the rape of the enemy's women so that she can get her new duds. 
a depraved mother. But back up, a daring woman, here called most blessed of women, like is said of Mary in Luke 1. You might think, well, that makes sense of Mary. She bore the Lord Jesus. She is Mary, meek and mild. Of course, she's blessed. But this woman? The girl with a mallet and a stake? Can we sing this? Dare we celebrate it? Is it sin? No, it's not. This was God's plan. His his people were oppressed. The judgment upon the Canaanites was coming. We don't know what this woman, Jael, knew, but we know that she knew enough to know who to side with. And she knew who to side with so well She was willing to risk life and everything to walk up to a sleepy general, put a stake next to his temple, and give one hard, swift swing with the hammer going through his head and into the ground. She crushed his head. He's a daring woman, and hence there is a dead general. The the mighty Canaanite army, the head of it, is dead at the hammer of a homemaker in her tent. God has won the victory, yes. But praise God for, at least in this instance, just how he did it. So let's consider, before we, before we wrap this up tonight, let's consider the significance of all this. On one level, as we talk about the significance of all this, I think we should think about the significance of women. It would be possible and unfortunate to overlook or to downplay the important, unparalleled role of women in this chapter or chapters. I mean, Other than God as the obvious hero of the story, the next two heroes are Deborah and Jael. Don't downplay the importance of their role in this story. Don't don't downplay or minimize or overlook how God often uses women despite what the culture around them says should happen. Women were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Jesus taught women. He cared for women. He violated the the social norms of first century Judaism and the way he treated women and involved women. Don't minimize women. And yet, let me also say, it, it would be possible, it would be also unfortunate to make this kind of passage... Judges 4 and 5, the definitive passage on the role relationships between men and women, especially in the church. So it would not be wise to draw a straight line between female prophetesses in the Old Testament and pastors in the New Testament. And it wouldn't be wise probably to to lean on the book of Judges even for much leadership principles 
uh, it was an odd time. If God can use women, he uses women indeed. Uh, and yet you probably don't want to build a whole theology of men and women in ministry in the church based on this one passage. Another level of significance we might call salvation for the weak. Salvation for the weak. What kind of Savior does God use in this story? Not the generals, the women. God has wrought the victory in part through two women without much help from the general Barak. And there's some help from some of the people, and yet through that, all the people were blessed. Barak is celebrated, not because he did something so great, but because, well, really a lot happened around him, and he just happens to be the general who gets blessed with the gift of this victory. And so it is with all the people, and especially those tribes that stayed home and loved their comfort too much. They were blessed. The victory was their victory, not because of what they did, but because of what others did. Notably, what the weak did. What is perceived to be weak. Isn't that a, a, significant, story, a significant angle to the story of the Bible? Where God often chooses to use the weak, the unimpressive, instead of the strong? Do you remember in Mark 8 when finally Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God? And then Jesus begins to predict his death, his crucifixion in Jerusalem. And Peter says, no way. No, no, no. Not that kind of Messiah. No, 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 no. Over my dead body will you be killed in Jerusalem. And Jesus rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. The Messiah is not the kind of Messiah you thought he'd be. Just look upon the cross and see. And so there's something really similar between Judges 4 and 5 and the gospel that we know in the New Testament, the, the cross of Christ. There's something very similar. God uses weakness. God uses surprising, ironic ways. But there's something very dissimilar between Judges 4 and 5 and what we know of the gospel accounts. Because uh, on the cross, Jesus was bearing the stake. He wasn't the one swinging the hammer. It's as if we deserve the tent peg in the temple and he took it for us. There's contrast between the Judges 4 and 5 story and the gospel we know. Nevertheless, it is it's salvation through the weak. Another, another point of significance is that salvation has always been rather gruesome. Salvation has always been rather gruesome. From the moment Adam and Eve sinned and needed covering, and God killed animals for the covering. Straight through to the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, 
where priests in some ways resembled butchers more than any clerical pastor or priest today. Our religion has always been a bloody one. The victory has always been a violent one. For God to save the Israelites in Exodus 14, he had to kill the Egyptian army. For God to save the Israelites in Judges 4, he had to take out their oppressors. And just one of them, the general of the army, got it through the head. That's the nature of war. It doesn't mean we should pick up hammers and spikes. It doesn't mean we should do this to any living human being today. No. We're saying it's already been done. The cross reminds us and says so clearly, salvation has always been rather gruesome. So we don't have to wonder whether Jael was in the right or the wrong. She was celebrated and called most blessed. She was right. We don't have to be that shocked by it. We have bloody Bibles. And we have a bloody Savior. 